0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Karin Chabra, and I'm excited to introduce another episode of our How I Built It series with the Association for Academic Surgery a Clinical and Health Services Research Committee. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. John Berkmeyer, who's one of the founding leaders of health services research and surgery, and really helped us understand variation in surgical quality and outcomes. Dr. Berkmeyer will take us through the history of surgical outcomes research and his own journey from Dartmouth to the University of Michigan, back to Dartmouth, and then to his current role uh, at Sound Physicians. And he'll talk about his thoughts on the future of health services research and what we can contribute as surgeons and scientists. So, Dr. Meyer, thank you for joining us today to, uh, for the AAS How I Built It series. Thank you, Karin. So, to start, for our listeners, can you tell us how you got started in health services research, especially at a time when so few people and, and almost no surgeons were involved in this field?
1: Well, I tell you, I got into the field uh, by serendipity. Some would say failure. Um, I wound up at Dartmouth as a preliminary general surgery intern outside of the match. I finished my couple of clinical years there. I had a categorical um, slot available to me, but it required that I take a couple years off uh, to spend in the quote-unquote lab. At that time, uh, Dartmouth had very limited opportunities for surgical labs, but uh, they did. But I did happen to be at the epicenter of health services research, Jack Weinberg, and the Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare, and via a combination of mentors and availability of of, uh, data for that type of research, um, just by accident, I was at the right place.
0: No kidding. So it was really just an accident.
1: It was really just an accident. Uh, You know, as I look in in retrospect, I had, uh, you know, some of the right attributes that ultimately would help me later on as a health services researcher. Um, I was a Mathematics major as an undergrad, and thus was uh, comfortable working with uh, big data sets and in analytics. I also had a political bent, uh, which uh, drew me into the health policy side of the field.
0: And uh, did you do a research fellowship in the same way that residents today do in the middle of your res- residency? It was similar in some ways,
1: but different in others. Uh, so I uh, applied for it and was lucky to receive a um, research fellowship funded by the National Library of Medicine, and um, while technically my fellowship was in medical informatics, I chose to allocate most of my time and coursework into uh, health policy and working with, um, with big data sets. Um, It was uh, different uh, to the extent that uh, given just a paucity of academic surgery mentors at that time, uh, you know, I worked most closely with either non-clinicians or with general internists.
0: And tell us what that was like. I'm trying to to picture the world of health services research at that time, and I imagine there was not much at all. So, you know, in the world, in the sort of conventional world of academic surgery, did you experience any pushback or skepticism? And and if so, how did you handle it?
1: Uh, Well, um, I I think it's fair to say that health services research wasn't a thing uh, at that time. You know, the uh, you know when I would attend the Association for Academic Surgery or the SUS meetings um, at the time, there was little or no meeting time allocated to you know what was then just called outcomes research. Um, I would um, occasionally get pulled into a panel to talk about the future of health service, uh, to talk about the future of academic surgery, but I was always the, um, you know, kind of the only voice or the uh, token member of that nascent field.
0: And when it came to, um, you know, trying to present your work in, in important forums, trying to change practice and trying to maybe advance professionally, how did you convey the value of your work?
1: Well, um at that time, my focus was spread out across several surgical specialties, was focused as much in clinical outcomes and clinical epidemiology as it was in uh, some of the more more controversial, you know areas of research that I would that I would gravitate to later. Um, I can tell you, though that you know there was then um, a pretty strong kept um, strong skepticism about Health services research as serious science. I can um, remember vividly in my very first year on the faculty at Dartmouth, the very first grant uh, that I ever wrote was uh, first to the American College of Surgeons and then to the American Surgical Association. They were both $25,000 grants and they were both, uh, you know, the science underlying what would later become my volume outcome papers. Both of those grants were not funded. Uh, you know, fortunately, the NIH felt differently a couple of years later. Uh, but I remember the one-paragraph critiques associated with both of those grants well, and both of them, just to paraphrase, said, this isn't science, this is just data mining.
0: And, and so what can folks today take away from that? It sounds like you, in addition to the controversial work on the volumes and outcomes relationship, you, you mentioned that you might have had some more sort of conventional or low-risk work. Is that something that you'd recommend to folks trying to get started today?
1: Well, um, I can't claim any credit to being prospective in my uh, thinking or strategic. You know, I was really doing what I gravitated towards or the types of research that my various mentors were funneling towards me. Mm-hmm. Um, what what I can say is that, uh, you know, what I appreciated then and the advice I still give to trainees now is to focus first on acquiring, you know, you know, the basic skills and the tools in the toolbox for success uh, in health services research, however your clinical career evolves over time. And that was certainly my own um, personal experience doing various types um, of research applied to a variety of different surgical disciplines. And it was only when I got on to the faculty that um, I began to focus on, you know, using large Medicare claims data sets to understand variation in both the use of surgery, but more particularly variation in outcomes in the role of volume.
0: And now, you know, I know you, you really got started on this work at Dartmouth. And then once you were recruited to Michigan, can you tell us about how you went about building the infrastructure here and how, you, how in turn, you know, you allowed so many other researchers, including myself, to, to, to learn and flourish? So
1: um, I came to Michigan via some combination of push and pull factors uh, the push was had nothing to do with you know my um, affection for Dartmouth, but I was just a little bit stale in what I was doing. I had um, agreed to be the chief of the section of general surgery. In a couple years into that role, I realized that that was uh, you know that I was just not passionate about how I was spending my time. Um, I came to Michigan because Mike Mahalan, then, um, then the chair at the University of Michigan, was very persuasive. And um, among the selling points he made to me was, you know, was the prospect of working kind of with a much deeper pool of committed surgeon scientists and being able to partner with and ultimately leverage sort of, you know, um, larger reservoir of, of surgeon scientists. And um, in the end, that's not only uh, why I came to Michigan, but ultimately why we were successful in building the health services research shop at University of, um, of Michigan. You know, as I think about sort of, you know, both my strategy, but also, you know, some of the factors behind our success, um, I'll acknowledge upfront that it was more organic success than it was forward-looking strategy um, but you know but but I can tell you kind of as I thought about it then and as I think about it now, you know I think the most important choices that we made either implicitly or explicitly was one focusing first and foremost first and foremost on building a um, intellectual critical mass in recruiting a um, you know a pipeline of, young surgical faculty uh, either at or on the brink of scientific and financial independence. So when I came to Michigan, you know, kind of the large part of my uh, role as the, you know, founder of the Surgery Health Services Research Shop there was in recruitment and selling talented partners to join me. And I, you know, had a lot of uh, early successes in that regard, you know, and to, you know, uh, you know, name just you know uh, just a couple people from a much longer list. Getting folks like Arden Morris and Sandra Wong and Justin Dimmick and Dave Miller and Brent Hollenbach to um, to sign on early in their own careers ultimately, you know, you know was very instrumental in you know the success that the center were to um, in, um, enjoy later. The you know I focused you know there's many ways that a academic leader of a surgical health services research shop can choose to focus his or her time um, in terms of um, his or her own work and how much time gets devoted to mentorship and um, at, um, at what level. You know, kind of my own focus at that time was, A, to make sure that my own work was moving forward. You know, the old saying when you get on the airplane is, you know be sure to secure your own oxygen mask before <laughs> before assisting others and making sure that i myself was independently funded was pretty essential both you know you know for the financial model but also for my own credibility in terms of mentorship you know kind of my own focus was um very was very disproportionately on you know on on the junior faculty you know and you know first and foremost ensuring that we recruited the right people that we as quickly as possible, got them established on um, on career tracks and funded via K award mechanisms as, um, as quickly and as often as possible. And then, um, you know, from there, moving them to financial independence via um, R01 or equivalent funding. Um, I did not focus at, at the outset on how to build the bench with talented medical students or even with surgical residents or fellows. But once the pipeline had, had been built and there was a larger array of mentors, uh, there was a big multiplier effect in making sure that we had good diversity at every, at every level of skill and training. Um, and then I think the third you know, part of the strategy in building a successful program was less on the, um, on the tactics Uh, And more on building the right type of culture, you know, focus on um, and focused on sort of uh, you know a a model of very open sharing of data and of scientific work products, um, including grants, and getting everybody to, you know, to borrow from each other and to stand on um, each um, each other's shoulders, and establishing that culture of not only fun but also trust. Um, and then finally, you know, kind of our success was uh, driven as much by what we didn't do as much as what um what we did do, and by that I mean that um, we let sort of the scientific and intellectual focus of the group grow organically and not try to pre-program it. So you know, so for example, while as part of my own recruitment to the University of Michigan, I got you know a very generous research package to fund a scientific infrastructure, um, you know, um, we did not follow kind of, kind of what I've called the Field of Dreams model, We're, where we hire a whole bunch of, of support staff and non-faculty, um, you know, um, um, personnel in infrastructure. We focused all of those resources on, on, on developing the faculty and then secondarily, you know, hired the people bought the data, you know, in the types of, of supporting infrastructure to ensure that they, uh, you know, um, um, move forward
0: quickly. So it sounds to me like a big piece of this is recruiting. And you, and you mentioned some, some really big names in health services research now who you helped recruit and mentor, and Dr. Wong, Dr. Morris, Dr. Dimmick. What did you look for at that time in an uh, mentee? How did you know that they would be um, successful? I
1: think that, you know, most important factors are interest, intellectual talent, And, you know, and probably the, you know, in third, uh, you know, in in third, in order, own priority was previous expertise in health services research training. At the time that we were starting, there simply was a pretty negligible pipeline of trained, um, you know, um, um, academic surgical faculty that had gone through either an rwj program or a comparable health services research training program so we really had no choice but to take people that had the right you know had the right aspirations um, in the um, in the talent and you know and you know had some prospects of building up that skill um, now that things have evolved and we're ten or fifteen years later um, I think it's you know, almost expected that, um, you, you know, that recruiting, you know, new faculty would um, imply some expectation of previous training in, in the data sciences or more formally in health services research methodology.
0: How did your, so, you know, you have a long history of research and, and surgical quality and outcomes and, and costs, and you transitioned from that to system leadership roles and, and you know, broader, broader impacts in the, in the private sector. How did what you learned doing research on, on quality and outcomes and costs inform what you wound up doing in health system leadership?
1: So, you know, so I'm uh, one of those people that is um, not guilty or at least incapable of long of long term planning. I've always thought about my own career in five or at most ten year chunks. And um, you know, my decision ultimately to leave the University of of Michigan to um, executive leadership roles was. Um, driven um you know largely by um you know a desire for different challenges uh, but also a desire to apply what i had learned as a as a scholar into you know on the ground making 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 healthcare better and i think that um there's different pathways towards executive leadership whether it's in the um, academic sector or it's in the private sector world, but there's certain things that good health services researchers do that uh, give them a big advantage in uh, many of those executive leadership roles. For example, you know, a large, uh, you know, a significant expectation of, of leadership roles is the ability to affect change and affect change um, uh, through changes in physician behavior and, uh, you know, some of the skills that we acquire as academics in, um, in communication and in persuasiveness, whether it's in written or verbal form, is really instrumental to the success of a leader. You know, good health services researchers are really comfortable in data. You know, and not just, uh, you know, statistical analysis, but being able to interpret secondary data and to, you know, um, you know, make reasonable inferences and apply those inferences into an into organizational strategy. Um, I've certainly found in, you know, my role uh, back um, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in managing its health system and, um, you know, and its accountable care organizations that that was a, that that was a valuable skill to have. Um, And um, I've certainly found since joining the private sector that 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 those same skills are just as valuable, if not if not more so. And then, and then finally, um, you know, my own area, research over the 20 years that I, I was um, in academia, you know, largely focused on the themes of variation in hospital quality and cost, variations in surgeon performance, and, uh, you know, and the uh, types of, of strategies for reducing variation and Improving quality, um, and certainly those uh, skills uh, as an as um, as an academician had direct applicability to what um, I'm charged with now as a health system leader.
0: I might put you on the spot and ask if you can give an example of a of a leadership problem you were tasked with, or you know, a quality problem that you were tasked with, and how you applied what you know what you knew from your academic career to that challenge.
1: Sure. Uh, you know, um, of, of many examples I could pull from is my um, current experience with sound physicians. Um, as you know, I'm the chief clinical officer for sound, and in that capacity, I'm responsible not just for clinical operations, but also for our success in value-based payment models, you know, um, whether they're population health payment models or episode payment models like BPC- BPCI. Um, in that capacity, you know um, you know success implies um, you know, you know understanding kind of the core sources of, of variation in um, episode spending around around hospital stays and a lot of the research that I did uh, both through my nih funded uh, work at Michigan but also in my applied work um, uh, with the Michigan, Michigan Value Collaborative implied sort of understanding kind of what are the biggest sources of variation in, in healthcare spending, um, which subset of those are most actionable, and what are the types of physician behaviors or supporting care models that can affect change.
0: So that's interesting, and I can totally, I can certainly see um, now how looking at variation, looking at spending variation, would directly inform your role now, having to manage it directly. So going forward, what do you think are the, the biggest challenges for health services research to tackle in the next 10 years? So so let's,
1: you know, focus just on academic surgery. And, um, you know, there is now and always will be pressures to understand sort of the root drivers of variation in surgeon performance and, um, you know, in how to not only reduce variation, but to make um, surgeons better. Um, There's some really fascinating uh, work that's being done here at the University of Michigan about, you know, that leverages video analysis, surgeon coaching, and other scalable improvement platforms that can be applied across, you know, very broad groups of surgeons that I think are really um, um, impactful and are likely to be fascinating when they're um, ultimately published. But, you know, as I think um, about the future, you know, uh, there's, you know, really important areas that have been relatively neglected uh, relative to surgical quality. The first is, um, you know, better understanding and identifying practical levers for reducing healthcare spending associated with surgery. You know, as you know, Healthcare spending uh, associated with surgical care, approximates seven or $800 billion a year. The scientific work today of both mine and others has focused largely on variation and how to improve spending around episodes of surgery. But arguably, the larger source um, of variation is associated with decisions about whether to operate in the first place, so um, a better so, so science that addresses practical models for getting at appropriateness for quality of of surgical decision making and finding the right combinations of technology, financial incentives, and um, um, accountability for driving that change. I think is a you know is a ripe area for focus, not just for for health system executives, but also for the scholars that are supporting that that work. Um, the other really um, promising avenue for future surgical health services researchers is in the um, domain of new technology and artificial intelligence. Um, outside um, of surgical care, the deployment of um, big data al- um, al- um, algorithms and machine learning for driving, you know, more consistent. More consistent clinical decisions, and for um, you know making much more efficient ru- um, routine health decisions, is moving in, um, incredibly quickly. And um, a lot of that innovation is being driven in the private sector. Um, um, I see no reason why the same types of um, of technology won't also, won't also be applied to um, you know high stakes decisions about the uh, value of. Oh, of a potential surgical procedure. Um, AI approaches to you know what used to be called shared decision-making just um, ha- have tremendous uh, value in not only mitigating some of the perverse financial incentives that then go both directions that currently skew surgical decision-making and drive unwanted variation in practice, but also have the ability to leverage big data and to truly understand uh, the potential value in clinical effectiveness of specific operations applied to specific patients.
0: Excellent. So here we have now for the next 10 years our, our research agenda in academic surgery. <laughs> to, wrap, to wrap up, uh, I just wanted to ask, what is something that most of our listeners wouldn't know about you? Can you give us some some fun facts or some fun trivia that uh, we can take, go home with?
1: Well I've uh, shared a lot of my dirty laundry in previous uh, forums and I won't reiterate here but uh, you know but one fun fact that's not widely recognized is that um, in college I was the editor of the Observer of Boston College, the school's conservative newspaper. Knowing what I um, you know know now about sort of the state of American politics and the um, occupant um, of the White House, I'm a little bit embarrassed about sort of that, <laughs> that personal history, but as I reflect back on sort of the you know, launching of that newspaper in the time, um, it's very similar to how I uh, you know, uh, felt during the early days of the surgical health services research movement in insurgency, <laughs> and Molotov cocktail throwing and uh, you know, one that ultimately
0: matured over time. It sounds like some things have changed, but some things never will. (laughs) Exactly right, Karin. Thank you, Dr. Brookmeyer. This is a great interview, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with our our, uh, listeners. Thank you for having me. Until next time, dominate the day.